Hello everyone and welcome to a slightly hungover edition of Poddywood, the podcast where we talk about movies with the people who make movies and need to find a new slogan really. But anyway, um, I am one of your co-hosts, Steve Hester, and with me as always is... The very sober Andrew Roger Carson. I'm definitely sober. I'm just massively hungover. (laughs) Well, it's only your birthday once a year, you're generally allowed, and then I just kind of spring, oh, we've got to record a show for you. Well, it needed to be done. I also get you to sit through 8mm. Yes. Uh, I did sit down. I had to do it this afternoon, actually, as opposed to last night, uh, because I was too busy drinking last night. Uh, But I sat down this afternoon and watched 8mm. What Joel Schumacher did after Batman and Robin. Oh, that must have been a very sobering experience for you. <laughs> it's it's not a pleasant movie, um, but it's it's kind of unpleasant in the same way that Seven is unpleasant. I, I thought it was a good film, actually, and I know that this series we're trying to go for the, the rotten end of the, the tomato barrel, um, but I quite enjoyed this, getting that out of the way. But it's not it's not a pleasant movie to sit through by any stretch of the imagination. Oh, no, no. It's uh, it's not Labyrinth. No. No, very true. Um, but yes, Nicolas Cage plays a private detective and he gets hired by this wealthy widow who finds a 8mm film that you put in a projector in her deceased husband's safe and it shows what appears to be uh, a snuff film and then she basically says i want you to go out and want you to find out whether or not this is real and uh and then let me know because she wants to know that the the girl is the girl in the movie is unharmed and then cage goes into the very very seedy underbelly of uh, of pornography and uh, and and illicit pornography and uh, and Spoiler, I'm not even going to say spoilers alert. You know, this film came out, what, 1999? It's 22 years yet later. So, come on. You know, if you want to watch it, you'll have watched it by now. If not, meh. Um, If you don't want it spoiled, then just skip ahead about 10 minutes or so. Um, But he finds out that the the movie itself was real. The girl died and then has to try and track down her killer. Um... So, as you can imagine, it's not a particularly nice thing. It, it, it touches on many, many different elements of the underground uh, fetish scene. There's lots of there's lots of BDSM and bondage, and it mentions uh, rape movies and so on and so forth. So, as you can imagine, it's some pretty pretty unpalatable material and there's there's one point where he goes to an underground market to try and track down evidence as to whether or not stuff films are real because it says in the movie oh no they're an urban myth and um one thing which i noticed there's there's a box of child pornography that he stops by and then you can because he's got a daughter in this he kind of picks it up and he's revolts by it to the point he's kind of absently wiping his hands on on his clothes as if as if touching it as as just like stained his hands so you know we're dealing with some dark stuff but you have you have an incredible cast going into this world of filth and depravity you've got Nicolas Cage you've got Peter Stormare 
as the guy who actually made the video. You've got late James Gandolfini as another pornographer. You've got Joaquin Phoenix as uh, Cage's assistant that he meets in um, in in a pornography store in Hollywood. Um, you've also got a young Norman Reedus in there who's playing yes. the, the victim's boyfriend before they broke up and he ended up in prison. So if you're familiar with stuff like Seven and that kind of dark material you probably will enjoy this and it, it even had even had elements at times it had kind of like the feel of something like silence of the lambs or or a very very dark big lebowski um <laughs> yeah it's uh no it's, it's it's not a pleasant movie but it is a good movie hope that makes yeah. some kind of semblance of sense I, I find it kind of interesting when you uh reeled off the entire cast there you didn't mention Catherine Keener. Oh, as his wife, yeah. So you, all of your guys were males, and I think that there's something in that there, where it's a very, very male-driven movie. I think it, it would is. Be, I think it would be a very. I'm not sure it'd be a more a darker, more powerful movie if Nicolas Cage was actually played by a woman. It not Nicolas Cage. Be. I mean, his character. Yeah. You know. I mean, to be honest, though, um, he, the character of his wife just seems to exist so that he can ignore her. True. She's constantly going, yo, uh, what's going on? What's happening? What are you doing? Where are you going? And he just kind of just stands there staring at something else. I, I love the way that they, they got the kind of purity of um, the Tom Wells character, mm. uh, which was the character played by Nicolas Cage. They did something very smart in the whole writing thing where... You know, even though he does all of this work, his biggest secret is the fact that he's smoking. Yeah, and there's a wonderful scene where he comes back at the very beginning. He his misses clocks immediately that he's been smoking, and he says, "No, I've been in all these bars. My clothes stink of it." And then, like less than two minutes later, he gets called down to his office, which is in his home, and he's on the phone and he lights up a cigarette. Yeah. <laughs> it's like he's not even trying to hide it. But um, I think it's just that's a great bit of establishing on your character as you know he is a very pure person. Mm-hmm. You know that is probably the length of his you know bad habits. Yeah. You know, and then he's going to get thrust into this world that is, you know, it goes beyond perversion to the point where I mean, it's almost when you see this movie. I watched it again also, but I watched mine last night because I follow the rules of the fucking show. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's one of those films where you feel dirty after you've watched it. You do. You know, in those scenes, you know, where he's going to the underground and they have a real life enema film playing on a screen. And it is an actual real film of someone getting an enema. And you're just like, oh, God. I mean, it, it's good to feel like that because obviously, you know, you, you're not that far lost with the porn you probably do watch. <laughs> but um, it, yeah, it, it made me want to come downstairs once I'd finished watching it, and uh, and just get a hug from yeah. uh, my partner Amanda. <laughs> I just, I just wanted I just wanted like the warmth of human contact. <laughs> so I take it she didn't sit through this one with you. Then. She didn't. No, she got the kids out of the way throughout most of it, which which was grateful for. Um, but speaking of that, you know, um, Max. Uh, Max California, California 
who's uh, played by Joaquin Phoenix, he, he says at one point, I can't remember the exact line, but he says like, you know, the devil is going to try and going to try and claim oh, you or something well, similar. Um, is it something like you dance with the devil, the devil doesn't change, the devil changes you? Yeah, that's it's it. all over the trailer. Yeah, you and know. he's basically saying that, you know, the deeper that you dive into this, the more that it's going to affect you. And then by the end of it, uh, it does affect him to the point that he outright murders someone. And yeah, yeah. it's it's James Gandolfini's horrible pornographer. But you compare the character at the end to the character at the beginning, and he has properly gone on this journey. I'm not entirely sure if, it's, if it is justified or if it isn't. I think I'm somewhere in the middle. I think it comes on a little bit too quickly, but at the same time, it is entirely justified, and I can honestly think that I... You know, would any of us really do the same if we were put into the same situation? We don't know. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm actually kind of shocked that this sits at twenty three percent. Yeah, right, because it's not a bad movie. It'd be interesting to know if a lot of those reviews came because of its subject matter. It probably is because at, at its time, I mean, this was a couple of years removed from Seven, and Seven kicked off like this whole you know subgenre of you know the. The, the serial killers and the seedy side of life and mm-hmm. depravity and things like that. And I followed this movie when it was coming out because Andrew Kevin Walker had written it, but uh, as we all know, he distanced himself from it because his version was a lot more graphic and grotesque in that way. I mean, this movie is the lighter version of that movie. Which makes you really wonder what was in that original script. Yeah, I mean, Joel Schumacher uh, apparently came off of um, Batman and Robin, and I think he was he was suffering from major kind of blockbuster fatigue, and he he went on vacation. When he came back, he called Columbia saying, "Is there anything that I can do to, but not a Hollywood blockbuster? You know, is, is there something you've got?" And Amy Pascal, uh, running Sony at the time. Uh, she said, oh, we've got this, but it's dangerous. It's probably the most dangerous script in Hollywood at the moment. And Joel Schumacher was like, Batman and Robin 2? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was uh, it was 8mm. And they read it and it was like, okay, we know this is going to be a challenge. They were going to make it independently with Russell Crowe. And Russell Crowe uh, was like, I, I want to do this movie, but I want a scene where he sets... Uh, the child pornography on fire mm. in a bin. And they're like, yes, we can do that. And then Nicholas Cage's agent at the time uh, ends up calling Joel Schumacher and says, oh, uh, Nicholas Cage would be interested in doing it. So naturally, Joel goes back to Sony, says, okay, we can either make it a, a really gritty independent movie with Russell Crowe, or we can make it a bigger movie with Nicholas Cage. Of course, what's Sony going to do? But, um, you know, they went with Nicolas Cage. And I think the one person who bore the brunt of that was Amy Pascal. She apparently took a ton of heat for green light in this movie. I'm not because surprised. Because the studio, yeah. were they were kind of disgusted by it. you know. And the promotion of the movie was nowhere near a lot of the Columbia Sony movies got. So they deliberately downplayed the movie a lot. Getting past the the um, the background behind it, do you think that everything should have been kind of wrapped up at the warehouse? 
because when it got to the end of it and Gandolfini's dead, uh, Peter Stormare's dead, and the only one who's left is the the actual uh, the guy who's in like the bondage master of the whole thing. Machine. Who, machine. Um, who just turns out to be just like some schlub that lives with his mother and says, no, no, I, I, I just do this because I like it. Um, it, it. Everything after that kind of felt like with a few little chops, it could have just ended at the warehouse. It, a lot I, of that. I, I, I see what you're saying. I mean, the warehouse scene comes just over halfway through the movie. It doesn't feel like halfway. It feels like much later than that. It feels much later, but then afterwards, obviously, you know, he, he gets his escape. Uh, he ends up going back home, and then he decides he's got to come back out, and he's got to, you know, he's got to finish it. So then, you know, he, he tracks down Eddie. Then he tracks down Machine, and then yeah. And there's there was something about the pacing that was a bit off. Yeah, it felt like it should have ended sooner. Because I think um, the first half of it has got quite a decent pace to it, but then something oh yeah. happens with the second half, and it, it it it's not that it's slow, but it it loses kind of like the momentum a little bit, and it just feels yeah. off kilter. I mean, it, it feels like it was written, and I know it was rewritten by Joel Schumacher and someone else after um, they bought it off Andrew Kevin Walker, and it wouldn't surprise me if the original version did actually end in that warehouse. Mm. And I think maybe they just added the end on. They wanted some more context. They wanted some answers, you know. And I think when you look at the the three characters of uh, Peter Stormare as Dino Velvet, which is if any character Peter Stormare was going to out crazy his own performances in every other movie he's yeah. ever done, his Dino Velvet was tempered, does it though. It wasn't yeah. as extreme as it usually is. I, I was talking with a friend of mine and was saying, you know what? I would love to just see a movie based on Dino Velvet. <laughs> you know, I w- yeah, you're watching that one by yourself, pal. Yeah, I think he could get severely dark with it. And it it's a character that I was really interested in. It's like, I'd love to know more about this character because realistically, he's in the one scene where they actually meet him at his office. Mm. And then he's at the warehouse. Yeah, there's no in between scenes of that. They are the only two mo- scenes that the the head honcho of Peter Stormare, and then he gets spoiler alert, he gets killed off in spectacular fashion. Well, no, that's the, that's the thing. It's not it's not spectacular. <laughs> no, his reaction to it is spectacular. Oh, his, his reaction's brilliant. He's like, going, "No, not like this. I need to go out movie star death." <laughs> okay. Um, really, when I look at this. Um, I am kind of conflicted on it mm. because I think what is there is great, but there is something that just feels like tacked on. It's like those many endings of Lord of the Rings, you know, that they put on there. Don't you besmirch Lord of the Rings. I knew I was going to get that. But to me, I mean, I love the going to machines house bit at the end. I don't think yeah. I've ever heard Aphex Twin work in a movie before, but holy shit. That track and the record player blipping as he's going through. It, it when you're listening to that in surround, it is terrifying. It is so tensely done. But the only problem being is, you know, when you go out the window and he takes the mask off, he's talking in a normal voice when it's pissing down with rain and all that after him. Yeah. Right? And it's like you wouldn't realistically hear him. <laughs> Maybe they would What? But, I can't I mean, hear that... you, I gotta buy a T Rex skull. What? Yeah. When machine talks, it is purely exposition. Yeah, 
you get his entire life backstory and everything in one clump of dialogue. And I thought, you know what? It would have been more effective if he didn't say anything at all and left us all thinking. Yeah. You know, uh, and Paul Verhoeven was approached to direct this movie at one point. You would have seen everything. Jesus. I wouldn't have been watching that version. No offense, Paul, but if you were tackling this, holy flirking schnit, it would have been dark. It, it would have been. <laughs> I don't think that movie would have. That was going to be an NC-17 for sure. Yeah. Um, two things I noticed, which I don't know if you picked up on uh, while I was uh, watching it on this time, that I never noticed before. Mm-hmm. One was a poster in James Gandolfini's office of a movie called Anal Crybabies. I, yeah, I, I did see the, the word anal. Um, I didn't see the crybabies bit. Um, but yeah, I saw that. <laughs> that's that's just too much. But there was there's one thing that I never noticed before, but now I think this is just kind of genius for this movie. I love how Cage, uh, how Nicholas Cage, is uh, Windows PC suddenly transforms into a Mac in the same scene. It was the nineties. No one gave any, no one give a shit about computers really, unless you're in a hacker film. But the thing is. You can't tell that it's like a reshoot or an ex- added on the scene because everything looks exactly the same apart from this computer. So mm. I just have this vision at some point they were like, we cannot get this thing to work. Um, oh, it's not compatible. Uh, bring in a Mac. Well, do yeah. we need to reshoot the entire thing? No, 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 no. Just no, no one will know. Chuck it on there. Noticed. Um, right. One last, one last nugget that I will like to drop on you uh, very, very quick before we move on. Um, is that noted down in the the credits? Uh, one of the stunt team is Chad Stahelski, who ah. who uh, doubled for Keanu Reeves in the Matrix films, and then went on to direct um, the John Wick films. So there you go. Very true, very true. I I didn't even pick up on that myself. Yeah, That's a bit of true, but yeah, you he, he was um. Quite a leading stuntman for a number of years. Yeah, he was probably Nicolas Cage's stuntman, I would have thought, in this. Quite possibly. Yeah. Uh, I wonder what, what stunt's going to be. Or he's probably just the guy who fell into the dry swimming pool. Yeah, something like that. Which I think is one of the only stunts in the entire movie, apart from going through the window into the churchyard. I honestly can't think of anything else. No. Anyway. Okay. Anyway, so, 8mm. Uh, Final thoughts. Final thoughts is it's an unpleasant watch. Um, it's nowhere near as as close to the lofty highs of something like Seven, but it doesn't deserve to be as low as it is. And I had a look on Rotten Tomatoes, and it seems to be very much a critics don't like it kind of thing. Audiences are kind of divided down the middle. Um, I I definitely put it. It is far better than it kind of got credit for. If we were doing a Get It Freshed, I would probably put it in a Get It Freshed. Yeah. I, I yeah. think it at least deserves double the points that it has from the critics. Yeah. I, I put it in the 50s. It's not going to be everyone's cup of tea. Yes, there are certain aspects of it that do not fit. Um, I, I'm kind of torn between whether the music actually fits. There's a lot of Bangladesh-style music cues. Yeah, I wasn't too keen on the music. Yeah. 
which um, I w- wasn't sure what the symbolism was. No. Is there a lot of like porn in Bangladesh? I don't, I don't know. It, it it obviously was there to signify something. But what I don't know. If anyone knows, let us know. Uh, so that is the first of the uh, what's in the bargain bin. Yeah. And uh, surprisingly enough, it's a film I guess you kind of have liked a little. Yeah, I have actually. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no rush to watch it again, but no, I thought, no, I, I, I didn't mind that one at all. Well, you don't need to now. You've seen it. Yeah. So uh, I doubt it'll come up on the anniversaries. Oh, but speaking of anniversaries. Watch them again, all of the time, or we get them on Prime for free. But we only know how old they are when we learn their anniversary. We could have just played the entire version of it for this one. Make up some time. Why have we not got many uh, anniversaries this week? Well, we've got three. Okay. But... If you've not seen them, there's not really going to be much to talk about. <laughs> it's always hit and miss this point, isn't it? They're yeah, well, frantically praying, please God, let him see it. Well, I was still writing all the content out when I was linking on to come onto the actual show. It's been one of them days. I was, I've been constantly an hour behind myself today. I do apologise. But um, I guess we all start. We'll go back to 1997. Okay. Where uh, the movie Air Force One was released. Oh, I do like this film. Oh, thank God you've seen it. Yeah. Stretched 20 minutes out on this. Um, <laughs> it was one of those early flipper Blu rays, not Blu rays, oh. uh, DVDs. Oh. Uh, so, yeah, it was ages before I actually saw the movie the whole way through without having to stop and get up and flip the damn thing over. But no, I like this movie. Get off I my plane! It. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I I saw it first on VHS. I didn't even get to the theaters to see it, but um, directed by the late Wolfgang Peterson, mm-hmm. who we just lost recently. Yeah, very recently. And uh, uh, if I'm going to talk about the Mount Rushmore, I will put Air Force One on uh, Wolfgang Peterson's Mount Rushmore. I put it there with uh, Das Boot or the boat. Das Uderboot. Uh, the... <laughs> That's left root boot. That's right boot. Um, yeah, the director's cut of Das Boot, obviously. Uh, I'd also put Outbreak on there, mm-hmm. which 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 is more like a documentary nowadays. And uh, controversially, there's always one controversial one when I do the Mount Rushmore. I would actually put Enemy Mine on there. Enemy. Oh, did he direct that one? Yeah, that was his. It was either that or the Neverending Story, which was like their. His first English language. No, I know he, he did direct Neverending Story. Did he? he did direct the Neverending Story. Yeah. Wow. Yes, traumatized an entire generation of eighties children with that movie. If it's not crying at a horse drowning in quicksand, it's that bloody dog. Not Falco, the wolf thing. I can't remember what its name was. Yeah, I remember the one. Yeah, that's freaking terrifying. They don't make kids' films like that anymore, do they? They don't, no. Unfortunately, a lot of the kids' movies nowadays, if they're not CGI animated, you know. And everything's then safe, and they have a musical number at the end. And Bring uh, back childhood trauma, that's what I say. Yeah. 
Bring back the days when the secret of Nim used to give you nightmares. Oh, jeez, that's another one as well. <laughs> yeah, that was like one of the first animated movies I ever saw, and it scared the living Jesus out of me. That but it's brilliant. Oof. It's brilliant. Creep yourself. Anyway, if you didn't have Watership down, you had that. Anyway, uh, Air Force One. Yes. Um, well, what could be said about this? It is basically among the last of the 90s Die Hard formula movies. Mm -hmm. So this was Die Hard on Air Force One, which had been done by kind of like Passenger 57, had done Die Hard on a plane. But they did kind of cop out because for some strange reason, halfway through Passenger 57, they went to a fairground. (laughs) Yeah, at least this one does actually stay on the plane for the most of it. And this was back in the day when the Russians were seen as the good guys. Well, kind of. Kind of. But but you have uh, Gary Oldman. Um, obviously, well, Harrison Ford is the president. Gary Oldman is uh, the nemesis, uh, the terrorist. You know, hire an English person to do uh, the main bad guy. That formula was all over the 90s. And Gary Oldman was the villain of the day. He was kind of fresh off Leon, where he delivered one of the greatest performances ever. Yeah, and it was just uh, before he did Fifth Element as well. That um, was was that was that I think that no, was No, Fifth Element was before this one. Was it? Yes. It was the same year actually. Oh. Uh so Fifth Element was released in ninety seven and this was released in ninety seven. So this was immediately following uh that incredibly bad hairstyle that he had in the Fifth Element. Crazy accent in both though. Oh yeah, well, he's the man of crazy accents. Um Air Force One unfortunately has been kind of tainted nowadays. Because a certain former president name dropped this movie, and the fucker used the score from the movie when he became president. Mm. <laughs> Which um, I'm sure that the person who recorded the original score before it was rejected was Randy Newman, and he must have been so relieved. Can you imagine Donald Trump coming out to little hands? Orange face, big disgrace. <laughs> President's on his plane. He's gonna fly somewhere. There's a Russian terrorist. He's got some crazy hair. You know, it's, <laughs> that's what I can imagine. Imagine the score would have been. Can you imagine if the, imagine if the things had got mixed up and whoever it was that actually wrote the score for this ended up doing Toy Story or something? Oh, well, f- funnily enough, you should mention that because um, the original score that was recorded for Air Force One by Randy Newman before it got he got replaced and that score got rejected, elements of that do actually show up in Toy Story 3. Oh, God. <laughs> but yes, um, Harrison Ford was not the first choice for the role. Do you know who it was? Oh, so, okay, this time... Was it... <sighs> Was it going to be someone like Sean Connery or Liam Neeson or someone like that? Someone definitely not American. No, it was Kevin Costner. So okay. Kevin Costner was the original choice, which I I can yeah I can, buy, see that. I can believe yeah. that. Uh, unfortunately, he was still stuck on the Postman at the time, and and that's a story that we've definitely got to talk to Bill about. <laughs> that's a very long route. Yes, it's like if you haven't learned anything from Kevin's Gate or Waterworld, as it's known. It's like, no, let's give him another three-hour epic sci-fi movie that's basically Waterworld, but with a mailbag. 
Yeah. And that was The Postman. But it had Tom Petty in it, which was pretty cool. This movie is, for the most part, it's brilliant. And it keeps the tension going. It's got some really nice set pieces, like with the... uh, like with the, the, the US planes and they're trying to escort it and then there's rockets that are being fired and one sacrifices itself. And like, oh, brilliant. Um, but then it has that terrible plane crash at the very end that just seems Oh, the one like, in the water. Yeah. The, the, you just look at it and think, no, physics don't allow an object the size of a plane to move like that. Have you seen those the the kind of like Instagram or TikTok videos where they show these planes making these really impossible landings and people are actually fooled into thinking they're real and they're just like CGI planes? No. Those look better than the crash in this movie. It looks like it was given to the work experience kid to do it at like about half past three on a Friday afternoon. Yeah, when it's they awful. could have just asked Harrison Ford to down a plane for freeze. <laughs> got that much bloody expertise. Got paid twenty million to down a plane in this movie. <laughs> but yeah, um, uh, obviously, the, there's a lot of things in this that don't stand right. It's the part in the movie where, like, all the like the vice president, secretary of state, and all stuff like that. You know, they're all arguing over, oh, who takes control now? Blah blah. blah. I, I would have so marked out if. A cameo from Alexander Haig would have happened like, hey, everybody, I'll do it. If you know your American politics, you'll find that at least humorous. No? <clears throat> okay, it, it's you can Google it. It's about when Ronald Reagan was uh, shot. Oh, did he step in and became a temporary president or something? Or what? Well, he stepped in and said, you know, that he was going to be taking over and apparently it wasn't even his job to do that. So. It's the Speaker of the House, isn't it? Something like that. It's something, it's know. not the vice president that takes over. Uh, I'm sure whoever it was did just as bad a job as every other president. Yeah. But um, Force One, uh, I really like this movie. So do I. You know, it's, it's one it's of one the of better... Movies die-hard clones from that period because they varied wildly in uh, quality because you've got stuff like Under Siege, it's a pretty good film then you've got things like Passenger 57 which isn't brilliant then you've got, what is it Sudden Death, which I actually quite like. Yeah, I actually like I've that. I've got quite a fondness for that one um, so you know, they tended to Flop and flop backwards and forwards on the quality of meter, just like Die Hard did by itself. Um, but this one, I think, does stand above the other ones, and I don't know if it's down to the performances, down to just the fact that the the situation is slightly different as opposed to just being oh, there's a house full of ordinary people. Though it's like an entire nation is having a gun put to its head in this kind of instance. I don't know what it is. It just seems to work better. Yeah, I, th- I think obviously it ranges into fantasy a lot. You know, it's not a movie you're going to take seriously. No. But um, it's a, it's a popcorn movie. Yeah. You know, there's some fun there. You know, the the scene where he's like calling through the, uh, the White House <laughs> main phone line and the woman doesn't believe that he's the president. If you remember that, yeah, it's just been—it has actually been quite a while since I've seen it. I'm just trying to remember 
just trying to remember the actual moment. I know that it's difficult for him to get through, and then when he actually does manage to get through, the entire room just goes, Hey! To the point <laughs> yeah. that you can't even hear what it is that he's saying. Yeah. Yeah. It's... Uh, I mean, for one, if your movie's got Xander Berkeley in it, you know he's going to turn out to be a bad guy. Yeah. Because he, he always does that. He, he's just... One of those personalities in the film, you know he's turning out to be the bad guy in it. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, Air Force One. You can't go wrong with it. But in, in speaking about the, the writing of a character, do you know who the most effective character in that um, movie is? Glenn Close? No. Who also stepped in last minute. I can't remember who was originally cast in that role. But um, the most effective character is... Uh, the woman who is in charge of like showing, you know, the the Russian reporters as they were onto Air Force One. She's written as the nicest, like most warm and welcoming person on Air Force One. And when she is shot, it is harrowing. She is assassinated yeah. over the microphone, and it is so unsettling because that character was perfectly written. It's like in Who Framed Roger Rabbit where uh, the the shoe gets dipped. <laughs> because... Oh, that, that actress is going to feel so warm about her career now no, 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 that no. She, she measures up to an animated shoe. Because the shoe <laughs> is all doe-eyed and it's all nice and it's all lovely. And then it just gets brutally just destroyed by Judge Doom. And that sets yourself up perfectly. Sets your movie up perfectly because then you know, okay, the bad guy does actually mean business. Yeah. You know, it gives you a proper reason to hate the bad guy. You know, you feel sorry for the person who died. And that kind of ups the stakes a bit more. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, that that has always stuck with me from that film. I always remember that scene because it was like, oh my god, that that actually is a horrifying thing. But it it was more effective than the Takagi murder in Die Hard, you know, because Takagi, noble Takagi, yeah, he was too smug for his own good. He was just, oh, I'm going to play these guys. Oh, really? Bang, dead. And Ellis, you didn't give a shit about, no. you know. But when someone innocent is effectively murdered it makes the bad guy so much stronger you know and it adds a serious level of tension to that movie and then when you see william h macy get shot you're like how dare you <laughs> how dare you touch my willy <laughs> oh shit oh. Oh. right okay right. yeah air force one 1997 okay what's Cheers. next <laughs> Okay, uh, let's go back uh, 20 years. 20 years ago, I've seen someone post about this just recently, and we discussed it last week with Jonas on our video episode, which you can find on YouTube, as well as an audio version on Spotify and all the other places. Uh-huh. Uh, signs came out. Siggins. Siggins. Yes. Now, obviously, we're going to differ on this movie, aren't we? In what way? In the fact that I like it a lot. I, I you don't. I, I don't mind it. But that's the thing. I, I, it. 
a lot of it is just way too slow. It's just people kind of stood around looking into the middle distance with nothing really happening up until about the last quarter of the film. And everyone goes on about the uh, jump scare where the alien walks down the end of the alleyway. It looks so bad that it did nothing for me. Uh, and what makes it even worse is if you've seen, oh, is it Scary Movie 3? That just lampoons and lambasts the movie. Just <laughs> We're looking rock- at you, David. Yep. If I hadn't have gone down that exact road and didn't have that exact 15 beers at that exact bar, then drive the exact 118 miles an hour over the... <sighs> yeah. It's, it's, it, it, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's an all right film but i'm just it's weird in in watching it again just recently that i did realize that kind of jordan peele style where we're watching nope also within the same month and uh there is such a kind of cinematic similarity there um i do place this among m night's best i do put it up there with the sixth sense I do put it up there with the village that I personally like. And there's something about Lady in the Water I have not figured out. But I do know that there is something about it I like. I just can't figure out what it is. But I would I would chuck that up there. Sorry, Last Airbender, but you just don't match yeah. up. It's funny that you kind of mentioned the whole car accident scene, which was perfectly sent up in Scary Movie 3, as you mentioned. If this um, is her top half. Can I? Yeah. But it's not the first time M. Night Shyamalan has used a car accident as a motivation. Um, Unbreakable did the exact same thing. But also, I mean, Unbreakable was the movie before Signs. But also, have you seen Unbreakable? I have seen Unbreakable. I've not seen Glass. Oh, you don't miss much. Um, So, Bruce Willis uh, and Robin Wright Penn have a car accident in that, which causes, you know, Bruce Willis to give up his, like, football career or whatever it was in the movie. Uh, And obviously he was never hurt from it. Then obviously in Science, Mel Gibson's wife dies, you know, from this car accident. But then I noticed another link where it's both... In Unbreakable and in Signs, water is a weakness. Is he? Because Bruce Bruce Willis's character, water is seen as his weakness, and it's over like he can't swim and stuff like that. So so he can actually drown. It's the only way that he can be hurt. So what you're saying is is that Shyamalan went back to the well? (laughs) Yeah, in a a sense. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. And then obviously... In signs, the aliens with water. Yeah. You know, so it was like, is that a conscious decision or is there something about car crashes and water? I don't know. It'd be interesting to know which one was written first. I believe Unbreakable was written first. Right. But it does seem a theme. And now it's a case of I actually now want to see some more of Shyamalan's stuff to see if car accidents and water play into 
the characters' narratives even more. They don't really in the first one. Uh, sorry, in um, Sixth, Sixth Sense. Sense, which is by far and away his best one. Um, there's there's a spaceship crash in. No, after no, wait Earth. a minute. No, hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. In the Sixth Sense, there is a scientist that's got hit by a car. Exactly. Yeah, but it's not like a major catalyst for the plot, though. No, but it's the reason why they're sat there in the car and he he gives the big reveal to Tony yeah. Collette. So it still is an auto accident. So that, that might be fun, something to look into there. Um, the the infamous scene where Mel Gibson and you know is having that last meeting with his wife. I can't remember who played his wife in it. Was it someone notice, notable? Oh, God, I can't remember. I, every I can't time remember. I try and picture that scene, I just keep picturing uh, Denise Richards. Yeah, God, yeah. I'm sure Charlie does as well. Um, yeah. But uh, it's the that scene in particular with Mel Gibson and his wife was shot the day after 9-11. Oh, that must have been a tough day shoot. Yes, they ended up having a, a candlelight vigil mm. at the end of the shoot that day. But um, yeah, that every single person, you know, they went through with it, even though everything was kind of shut down, everyone was scared, but that scene was scheduled to be shot and they shot it. Mm. So that that is kind of always imprinted on that scene nowadays, that that was the time frame of when that happened. Uh, it just seems so long ago and yet for kind of like people our age, really, it just seems like yesterday. Exactly. Weird yeah. the way that time just plays tricks with your brain. It is. And I went to um, Ground Zero just recently uh, while I was in New York. Mm. And it is just a... It's so bizarre. It's a strange place, isn't it? it it's, it's an incredibly strange feeling when you get there. Because I remember um, Vincent Tumio, who was with us on that day, he's an actor... And uh, he said, it's going to be interesting to pick up on what you feel when you get here. I'm not going to say anything. You know, just just kind of t- just take it in. And, it, you know, it's, it's so weird that you can feel this real heavy presence there. Mm. Uh, and every single person who was there, there was, oh, God, 200, 300 people there when we were there. And everyone was quiet. It is a very, very somber place because I went in 2017, I think it was. And you're absolutely right. There is this sense of respect and reverie there for what happened. And uh, the one thing that was stuck in my mind more than anything else is that I was expecting the actual footprint of each of the buildings to be much bigger. Um, and they weren't actually kind of wide buildings. It was two very tall ones, but there were there were two very very small ones. And I I think that kind of stayed with me. I don't know why that in particular did, but that that always stayed with me. Yeah, um, I know it's kind of detracting from signs a little bit. I don't know whether yes. that's yeah. saying yeah. anything in regards to signs. Obviously, we've got Joaquin Phoenix yet again. Yeah. Um, doing a great job, and no, he was not the first person in line for that role. Who was, dear? Who was? Mark Ruffalo. Okay, no, nah, no, no. I think I, I think they they did right with uh, 
having Mr. Mr. Phoenix. Yes, well, Mark Ruffalo had to actually opt out of the role because they discovered his brain tumour, uh, which turned out to be benign. But uh, it was very nearly him that did it. And uh, Mr. Dependable, Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, realistically, when you look at Joaquin Phoenix and all of the roles that he has had throughout his career, he has had such a diverse career. you know. But it's not an in-your-face career either. No, except you for know? when he did that weird movie where he was... Oh, his, his documentary, you know, thing. In, yeah. Yeah. Which, I mean, yeah, yeah I, th- I think he's kind of stepped back from that now. And, you know, he's, he's getting really serious about, you know, it's... You're an actor. You don't have to live this shit. No. It's it's like the... Oh, I can't remember the old story where... Uh, Are you talking about Marathon talking, Man? Yes, the yes, Marathon Man story. When, Have you ever tried uh, acting? Yeah, yeah it was. Uh, was it Lawrence Olivier? It was in that one. It was Lawrence Olivier to Dustin Hoffman. To Dustin yeah. Hoffman. Yeah, he's absolutely right. You know, it is just it is acting. I mean, if, if, there's many different techniques that you can use, and one of the, the biggest ones is Stanislavski, which means that you take some element of the real world into your performance, and some people just try and dig up something which may have happened to them in the past, like if you've got a scene where you're having to uh, be quite emotional and upset, then you kind of reach back into your own past, you know, you try and think of people who've broken your heart or relatives that you've lost something like that, that's, I think he's standard, but then when you get people like Jared Leto who are <laughs> sending pig's heads and use condoms to people then they, you've you've crossed the line there Really, it's it's just it's it's acting. That's it. You're not curing cancer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd love to know the shit that he was doing for Morbius. Oh, I'm gonna go out and bite some people. I'm gonna really suck some blood. <laughs> <laughs> was that a was that an authentic Jared Leto impression? <laughs> no idea. <laughs> Sound like a seventies cop show. Um, yeah, I mean, signs. A lot of people on the fence. I remember a lot of people were like, "Oh, it's shit," you know. Oh, it's you know, it's crap. It's boring. War of the Worlds did something very similar, and it's taking the point of view of an alien invasion on one family. Yes, um... right? and that was a major complaint of War of the Worlds for a lot of people. But that's what it is. You know, you've got to. You've seen so many movies of alien invasions that do not work where it's all-encompassing, you know, and the focus is on the spectacle. I kind of like the approach where you're seeing it from one person's vantage point. And no, yet again, bring it up. That does the same thing. It is from the vantage point of this small, like, group of people around this one house. No, I I agree with you. I think sometimes you can you can get away with having a much smaller scope. But uh I don't know, it, it, there still needs to be stuff happening and it just felt like there were just long swathes of this movie where nothing in particular was going on. Well, <laughs> it, it it depends on if you like the tension and I do. You know, and, and these films are set for setting in a a movie theater and watching it and really just soaking up that atmosphere where, you know, you can't get distracted by anything else. Okay. You know, um, but I do, I do like science. Okay. Well, like I said, I'm, I'm a bit, nah, it's a bit meh for me. 
But uh, okay, okay. So what what have we got last? <laughs> well, if you've not seen this film, this is going to be over in thirty seconds. Okay. Okay, in 1992, the movie House Sitter was released. Is that Steve Martin? It is Steve Martin, yes, and Goldie Hawn. Uh, I think I saw it back in maybe 1992. Can't tell you anything that happens in it apart from the fact that she pretends to be this guy's wife and then ruins his life and then he ends up falling in love with her. Yeah, so... You try switching that story. The you try switching those roles around. It becomes incredibly creepy. Yeah, it's kind of like overboard. Yeah. Oh my god. And that's Goldie Horn as well. Yeah. yeah. So basically, she just did overboard yet again. Um, and it's based on, from what I can remember, it was uh, there. It was a one night stand, and then apparently. A regrettable one night stand for for Steve Martin or whatever, and then suddenly she's like, "Oh no, I'm going to come in and and uh, you know invade his life and move in." You know something that What About Bob actually did a lot better, except it wasn't a one night stand. <laughs> just just to get that into that head, that would have been interesting. One night stand between Richard Dreyfus and Bill Murray. Yes, <laughs> Doctor Marvin. Hello. <laughs> Yeah. But uh, House Sitter, directed by Frank Oz. We know who Frank Oz is. We know him as the voice of Fozzie Bear. We know him as Bert. We know him as Grover. We even know him as Yoda. Yeah. But little do a lot of people know, he is actually an accomplished director also. Yeah, he's directed loads of stuff. He directed um, Little Shop of Horrors. Very true. Um, I Yeah, at the moment... Bowfinger. Bowfinger, yes. Yes, he did. That's Steve Martin again. That's his best movie. That is the best movie he has ever directed. It is hilarious, and it gets funnier with each time you view it. Just staying on Bowfinger one second, I love that scene where they're just getting the shot of Kit Ramsey from behind, but it's his younger brother, and he's just getting so excited about seeing a woman with the top off. (laughs) He's just like going, Wow! You're gonna be a star. star. <laughs> it's it is. It's uh, a hilarious movie, yeah. and it's so full of Hollywood inside jokes. You know, the mind head, which is basically Scientology. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, it's a brilliant movie. Um, in Taiwan, this has a very interesting name. This movie is it. The the she devil who comes to steal your house or something like that. No, but uh, that probably would have made more sense. In Taiwan, this movie is called Half a Wife in My Soup. Ah, oh. I cannot figure out. I mean, that's a play on fly in my soup. Could be, but why half a wife? <laughs> no, she's she's definitely got her legs in the movie, and she's definitely got her head. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm guessing there's some stuff in between to link the two parts. So, well, there was early in the movie, otherwise there'd be no plot. Um, yeah. yeah, half a wife in my soup. So I've been trying to figure this one out for the last hour, because obviously the the in my soup, the fly in my soup, is a lead on to a punchline. Why would there be? You know, waiter, there's half a wife in my soup. 
we're probably pondering on it way too much, but then again, that's pretty much the movie for you. Well, if I remember correctly, the jokes were good. Waiter, there's a, there's a fly in my soup. And the waiter says, well, don't talk too loudly or everyone will want one. Is that the original joke? That's that's one that I, I remember hearing that in Faulty Towers. Right, I think okay. it was a hair so, in my soup. Okay, so what's the origin of the fly in my soup? I don't joke? I don't know. What's the original punchline? Well, there's also the other one. Uh, waiter, what's this fly doing in my soup? And the waiter looks in and goes, backstroke. Okay, <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> you know, but I don't really know how this all translates to, where did you say it was? Korea? How? Be it, be it, Vietnam? Where was it? Taiwan. Thailand. I don't know. Taiwan. Taiwan. <laughs> Taiwan on. Um, I, I, no. No idea. But it's not the most craziest uh, title change that they've ever had. There has been some really bizarre ones, and I guarantee you all of their Steven Seagal ones are going to be amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, House Sitter, it's not a classic. It's one of those movies that is just there. I think it filled two hours. I Nothing guess. special. I'd, I'd be damned if I can remember anything more about it than what I've already said earlier. But this was going... This was kind of the last hurrah for Goldie Horn and the re-emergence of Steve Martin. He had a career boom around this time with Father of the Bride. Mm. Um, there was another film that came out around the time of House uh, that also had Steve Martin in. Was it and Parenthood? Parenthood was a couple of years before, and that is an right. incredible movie. Mm. One of the best ensemble comedy movies I've ever seen. With Joaquin Phoenix again. <laughs> Fuck my life. <laughs> oh my God. And Keanu Joaquin Reeves. Phoenix is everywhere. And this Keanu tends Reeves. to happen on this program. We start, we start with something, and then we just... It's like seven degrees of Kevin Bacon. Everything just keeps well, coming back to a common thread. Well, Hollywood's a really small place. Yeah. It really is. When I link somebody uh, that I'm working with on IMDb Pro and then it says, oh, you have this person in common. And it's like suddenly now I've got like 12 people. But now, actually now I've got over 30 because it's like, oh shit, all our Hollywood guests. <laughs> so I'm now linked with all these people. And then you see they're linked with people and it becomes this giant pyramid of people. So it's like, I wonder how you get to be that Kevin Bacon character. Where you just link to everybody by joining the EE network. Ah, I which guess so. You'll probably only get if you're listening to this in the UK, and then you probably won't get EE either. No, <laughs> definitely don't get but, three. Yeah, I mean, House Sitter was released in 1992, which is strange because that's kind of the summer come down, and it was it was very weird. I was talking with Bill about the releases from Warner Brothers around this time. There were some amazing things coming out, and the bodyguard was still impending. That thing was being released at Christmas and not leaving the box office for months. Yeah, just like that bloody single that came from it as well. There's a, there was always one. That's why we always say nowadays, thank God, the, the love theme from this movie and uh, and the one with the video, music video tie-in is never there anymore. Yeah. But yeah, I'm, I'm amazed how Sitter actually became a number one movie because it's not ranked among my favourite movies of the year, but I guess 
Steve Martin must have been riding the high at that time, especially after Father of the Bride was such a hit. It worked for someone. I mean, it did work for someone. Uh, but yeah, uh, that was the anniversaries for this week. Short, sweet, to the point. So I guess it's time for us to delve back into the box of rot again, isn't it? What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? For some reason, this music now sounds better than it did when we were actually looking at good movies. (laughs) It's got the full-on scream. Yeah. Uh, But yes, explain what's different about What's in the Box now for the people who have just rejoined us. Okay, well, this season on What's in the Box, Andy's going to put his hand into a box full of movie titles, except this time around, they're going to be certified rotten. On Rotten Tomatoes. This is going to be the cream of the crap. This is going to be everything which is 25% and under. So, same rules apply as before. If I have seen it, then we just keep pulling out movies until we find one that uh, I haven't seen. And I go away and watch that whenever I feel the urge to, but before we record the next episode. That's the most long-winded way you could have gone to explain that. You can tell you're feeling hungover today. I'm very hungover today. <laughs> well, I'd like to say, oh god, if you I don't think you've seen this because we have mentioned this movie in the past. Okay. I'd like to say that you're going to feel better after this movie. But making their first appearance on a what's in the box Franchise Pictures presents... Oh, God, no. Please don't let it be Battlefield. Huh? Well, you've seen that anyway, haven't you? No. You haven't? Oh, shit. I'm, I'm, that one's definitely in the box then. No. You have got 3,000 miles to Graceland. Now, I remember this coming up when we were talking about Franchise Pictures, and if you want to go back and listen to that episode yourself at home, you can do can't remember which one it was, but just have a look down your Spotify playlist, it'll be on there. And I remember thinking, I quite like the sound of that. I wouldn't mind watching it at some point. Well, now you're going to watch it. Yes. So, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm actually quite looking forward to that one. That was Nicolas Cage again, wasn't it? No, it was Kevin Costner. No. Right. And Kurt Russell. Okay. But the theme was Elvis's, and you were probably thinking of Honeymoon in Vegas. That might be it, yeah. Yeah, the Elvis's robbing a casino or something, aren't they? Yes. Right. That's part of the plot. <laughs> Ocean's Eleven, except with just, like, little more conversation on repeat. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, it's going to be hard to describe this one. Uh, I'm going to have to watch it again myself. Uh, but Bill, funnily enough had kind things to say about it on the franchise show. So you may actually get some joy out of it. Okay. Or you might be like, what the hell have I just watched? Okay. Well, we'll soon find out next week, though, won't we? Yes. Or you'll have a sore neck from all of the Dutch angles. <laughs> oh, a staple of franchise pitches. Not more Dutch angles, please. That's better than Dutch ovens, though, I suppose. Yes. More Dutch angles than Paul Verhoeven going fishing. 
<sighs> anyway, uh, well, that's the show this week. Uh, thank you very much for tuning into our audio shows. We will be having Bill Daly on our next video show that is coming up shortly in a couple of days. Uh, what we're going to be talking about, we're not too sure. We were going to talk about Wolfgang Peterson, but that's kind of lapsed now. He's he's gone, and we've lost the Queen since. Um, but you know, hey, we we all quickly got over that one, unless we were queuing for like twelve miles, which I wasn't. No, most of the country. Why, is what, why for queue for twelve miles? It's on TV. I don't know. I guess it's the same difference with you know being at a sports match and watching it at home in your lounge. You can pee into a cup in both places, so. (laughs) (laughs) And on that note. Yeah. uh, So, yes, uh, Bill Daly will be joining us. We're going to have Rick Ravenello joining us again soon. Uh, That's going to be hilarious. Mm. Oh, my God. I've I've never heard so many people telling me that they loved the episode with Rick so much. It was a fun one. And he's absolutely in love with the show. He loves coming on. We're hopefully going to be hearing from John Ashton soon. And uh, you never know who's going to show up on Partywood. Yes. So between then and now, you have yourself a good week. You can follow us at Partywood on pretty much every single platform that's out there. Facebook, Twitter, you know. Join in the conversation. Let us know what you think about the show or any of the movies or any of the other topics that we've mentioned today. Uh, And so with that in mind, it's a goodbye from me. And it's a goodbye from myself also. Bye.